0: Hello and welcome to the Crashdown. My name is CJ and today we're talking about Independence Day. No, it's not the 4th of July. No, we're not talking about an awesome Will Smith movie. We're talking about Roswell. And this episode is fantastic, in my opinion anyway, because it's all about Michael. Now I know I can make any episode about Michael, but legitimately this is centered around his foster care situation. I'm going to admit it right off the bat, I tear up when I watch this episode. You guys know how much I feel for Michael. I think I've been very vocal about it, how he's just this wounded child who needs love. And in this episode, we're going to see him reach out, ask for that help, ask for that love, and maybe finally find a place of his own. Before I get into that, though, let's catch up with last week. So, As you know, it was our blind date episode. Liz was trying to get over Max by allowing herself to be set up on a blind date by this radio station. It doesn't end up working, though, because Max gets a little drunk with Kyle. Well, by a little drunk, I mean he took a sip and then his alien powers went wacko. So he crashes her date, tells her that she's his dream girl, kisses her in front of an entire auditorium full of people, and then ditches her once again. So this episode opens at school. It's obviously like the next day or a couple days later, and Liz is recanting this kiss to Maria. Even though Max took off, said he didn't remember any of that, she just can't help but feel like she saw the universe in that kiss. Maria, though, is going full speed ahead with her plans to cut the aliens out of her life, She gives Liz this homeopathic medicine, those kind of eyedroppers you put under your tongue, and her concoction is called grief relief that vets give to animals basically to sedate them. Maria says that her mother sells this in her shop. So this brings up some more questions about how the adults in the show are making money, but we'll get to that in a bit. So she tells Liz to put that under her tongue every time she sees Max. And oh, by the way, he's coming this way. There isn't time to talk, though, because Isabel barges up, pulls Max away, and says Michael's been acting weird. Even weirder than normal. He ditched her in the hall, practically ran into the boy's washroom. She needs Max to go and check it out. So he does, and Michael is being super evasive. He's washing his face in the sink. He's holding his arm over his face to kind of block it. He's walking into one of the stalls. Max eventually has to fake leaving the bathroom, like, opening the door, and then he, like, jumps up onto the counter so that Michael, I guess, can't see his feet or something like that. But it turns out that Michael has a black eye. And this isn't just from fighting. This is from his drunk foster dad, Hank. That creep is back again in a big way. Apparently, he's done this to Michael before, but he's never left a mark. And Michael can't even defend himself because he doesn't have mastery of his powers yet, and he's afraid that he'll kill Hank. If he lets it go, who knows what he can do. When he tried to fix Maria's Jeep, he basically set it on fire. What would happen if he was angry and tried to use that? Ugh, this poor kid. He's not even just being neglected. That's bad enough if no one loves you. But then to have someone actively antagonizing you like that? Ugh. My heart breaks for him in this episode. Anyways, it cuts to the two of them and they're out by this train track. Michael is chucking stones at this train that's going by. (laughs) Oh, I just thought that was kind of a funny thing. But in this moment, Michael asks him not to say anything and to heal him. Michael's powers aren't that evolved enough. He could do it river dog in an emergency but he doesn't have that finesse he could like blind himself or something like that if he tried to heal his eye max does it because what else is he going to do michael doesn't want to go to the cops they can't draw any more attention to their situation and who knows where he'd get sent if he doesn't have that foster home who knows where the next set would be it could be in a different town it could be on the other side of the neighborhood it could be at a different school that's what's so hard about these situations is this kid has no control So how is he supposed to be able to control his powers? That's not a skill set that's been given to him or shown to him. He's just powerless as he's bumped around from place to place. Max does a really crummy job of hiding this secret, though. He immediately goes to Isabel and tells her what's been going on, and she's so upset, too. She wants them to do something. And, ugh, here's the hard part. You want to help someone, you want to keep their confidence... But when it's a situation like that where the person is in danger, whether from themselves or something else, I think in some ways you do have an obligation to get them help. But now I'm not sure that these kids are actually equipped to do that. As soon as Michael walks into the crashdown and sees Isabel's face, he knows that Max has told her the truth and basically turns around and goes right back out. She goes chasing after him, saying, her dad's a lawyer, why don't you stay with us for a few days? And that is what happens, which is kind of the meat and potatoes of this episode. What's Michael gonna do? Can he find another place to stay? And he calls it a situation. It's a foster situation. It's not a home for him. It's just something he has to deal with. And you can see when he's at the Evans house, just how far he is from a normal home life. When he's at dinner, he starts serving himself before everyone sits down. He basically refuses a dish that Mrs. Evans made, her green bean casserole or whatever. He thought it looked kind of weird, so he didn't even want to try it. Mr. Evans keeps asking questions, and Isabel's trying to field the answer. Well, Michael thinks this. Well, Michael does that. And they're like, why don't you let Michael think for himself? But Michael doesn't have anything to say. He already is awkward in situations like that. He has issues with authority, And now he feels like he's taking charity from them? Ugh, this is not a good situation for Michael. On a normal day, he has his guard up. But now, it's like he's in meltdown. My issue with this whole situation, though, is he has been friends with Isabel and Max for years. The parents even acknowledge that. But this is like one of the first times they've ever had him over I would think that this would be his second home. Wouldn't you want him to come over all the time? Now, I know he's kind of a problem kid, or from the wrong side of the tracks, but the parents know they're hanging out all the time. Why wouldn't you welcome him in? You see in the earlier episodes that Michael comes and crashes in Max's bedroom, but in the middle of the night, in secret? Why weren't they having slumber parties? Why weren't they coming over for dinner? Why didn't they study every day after school? That's really crappy. Isabel and Max go on and on about Michael's family. You're one of us. You can't leave. But you aren't inviting him into your family. No wonder he's so defensive. No wonder he feels like he's on the outside. That's insane to me. I mean, I've been invited to Easter's and Christmas and Thanksgiving at other people's houses, like my friend's houses I've gone over. Why would he not be invited? That seems so bizarre to me. It's not like he has a family that's like, no, we have to see you all Christmas. We're going to your grandma's house. Hank doesn't give a crap where this kid is. So as much as they say they're there for him, they really, really haven't been. And now Isabel's trying to make up for it all in this one night. After dinner, they start playing Monopoly and Isabel's cleaning up because she is ruthless. And when they go around, Mr. Evans needs to collect from Michael but Michael doesn't have any money, and they're like, you don't even have any properties to mortgage, and Michael's getting really defensive because, hey, that's his whole life. You guys have everything. You have a money, you have a house, you have family, you have everything. I have nothing. And Isabel's trying to loan him money, but that's not the way they do it. In this family, we play by the rules. And, hmm, okay. Yes, I believe that you need to be fair, but I'm one of these people that games are fun. Now, I am competitive, don't get me wrong, I love to win. But I would rather everyone at the table be having fun than me win a game. If you're making other people miserable, what's the point? Now, I smack talk, don't get me wrong. I talk a good game myself. But at the same time, I'm going to support other people. There are a few board games now that are collaborative board games, like all of you are trying to work together to get one goal, Flashpoint. It's a great game. I wish there were more games out there like that. But I get it, Monopoly is about capitalism, so it's the survival of the fittest, I guess, in the economies, whatever. But Michael just storms out, of the house even, like he's done, this is ridiculous. Mr. Evans doesn't know him, he doesn't like him, he doesn't want to come forward and be the poster child for abuse. But Isabel doesn't want him to pretend, he doesn't want him to run away. She's scared for him, and honestly, she should be. Later, when he gets home, Hank is drunk and waiting for him and they end up getting in a fight. Hank wants him to do the wash and Michael doesn't want to do it right then. What's the point? And so they end up yelling at each other and Hank's getting really aggressive. And that's when Max and Isabel show up. I guess they followed him back. And they're defending him. Isabel's like, you touch him again, I'll kill you. And Hank pulls out a gun. Max looks like he's going to wave it away, but then Michael does. He holds up his hand, and it starts shaking, and the fridge doors swing open, and the gun shoots off to the side, and obviously there's a huge commotion. They end up kind of running out of there, but Michael doesn't want to go with them. He just wants to leave. A couple of days at the Evans house is not enough, and I get that. Like, okay what, you're getting a two-day vacation? Or I'm going here and then what? Like, I can't stay with you indefinitely. That's not enough of a solution. And you guys seem quite content. So I'm gonna go and find our home. I'm gonna go and find Nisato. That is better than anything I have here, even if Nisato's a killer. Because Nisato probably won't kill him. Whereas Hank, if he's drunk and has a gun, who knows what he's gonna do? It's so sad. I can't believe it. Poor Michael. And Isabel and Max are not equipped to handle this. They want to help, but they don't understand the scope of what he's dealing with here. It's not just about Hank. It's this whole institution that's going to come down and he's going to lose his identity. He's going to be a case file and they're just going to shuffle him around. Having this horrible track record, I'm sure he has an actual legal record. He's been arrested enough times. Detentions at school. I'm sure he's failed classes people aren't going to expect a bright future from him. It's so tough. Max actually addresses this later on. But I want to take a little break and jump back to what's happening with Liz and Maria. We're getting a little heavy. I'm feeling a little bad for Michael, so I need to take a little breather. When Max and Isabel were at the crash down, and Michael comes in, Liz was working with Maria, and she's been practicing what Maria's been telling her, and that's just to say no. She said no to Max last night. Well, he wasn't there, but the next time she sees him, she'll be ready. This is so funny, because Maria compares Max to drugs. And we have another great 90s reference, which is that Rachel Lee Cook, like, don't do drugs ad, where she starts smashing things with, like, a frying pan, like smashing eggs and smashing up this kitchen like this is your brain this is your brain on drugs Well, maria picks up a frying pan and she's like this is your brain on max just say no they are interrupted at this point by amy deluca and this is where i'm going to get into her business she is bringing a whole stack of pies to the crash down and i guess she makes them and then sells them but okay let's break this down she sells alien trinkets homeopathic medication, and pies, yet half of her annual income was tied up in that one wrestling match in the convention episode? Lady, you are doing something wrong. That is either the biggest fighting matchup in the whole city of Roswell, or you are greatly mismanaging your businesses. Now, if she's working with Liz's dad, I guess she really probably is, But anyway, she is apparently a great cook, and she brings them in, and she's listing, oh, I've got one of this, one of this, one coconut, and all of a sudden, like, Valenti sidles up, like, oh, did I hear you say coconut? Ooh, I would eat a coconut, and she's like, I only made one, and their banter in this episode, oh my goodness, we get to see the two of them trying to date again, ugh. Her smile, how excited she is yet trying to be reserved, and how cute he is trying to hit on her. I love these two characters together. They are so adorable. Anyways, so she is kind of a little defensive because she's like, when I make a pie, I expect it to get eaten. And okay, hmm, there's some devil entendres happening in this scene. Because she's mad. Every time they've been on a date, he always takes off. There's some business. And he ends up ditching her. So they never actually made it to dessert before. So now she's like, if I make a pie, I expect it to get eaten. And he's like, how about this evening? I promise. If you make it, I'll eat it. And... Okay, yes, if she makes the pie, but also if she shows up, he'll eat it, hmm, her pie. Anyway, I think these two are hilarious, and I actually really love this pairing. They're so wacky, with her hippie dippy all over the place and his by-the-book attitude, like, straight-laced. Oh my goodness, the two of them are hilarious. She warns him, though, she's got a three-strike law. This is his last chance, and it seems to me like he makes the most of it. Because after Liz and Maria get off work, um, they go back to Maria's house, and as they walk in, they see like a half-eaten pie, then they see like a plate on the table, and then they see Sheriff Valenti's hat. Then they hear some giggling coming from the back rooms. Oh, what's happening there? And so the two girls kind of grab each other arm, like trying not to make any noise, and then pretend to walk in the room again so that they, like, walk to the front door and slam it, and then, like, stomp their feet, and they're like, mom, I'm home, and she comes, like, popping out of the back room all disheveled, like, oh, girls, you're home early, but it's ten thirty. That's not really early. I'm assuming it's a school night, and so Maria is like, okay, we're going to my room to study, and you're gonna go to your room to sleep, right? You should probably get to sleep alone. She's digging, and Amy's kind of trying to brush it off. But then Sheriff Valenti pops out of the back room and he's got lipstick all over his face. And he's got this like this grin on his face, like the cat that just ate the canary. He is so like, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder how far they got. But hey, let's not talk about that. We're not drunken Kyle asking how far you got. Let's just say that these two really enjoy each other's company. After that, we get another classic Amy and Maria scene where the two of them are almost equals. In some ways, Maria's almost her superior, but then Amy will step up again. So in this one, Amy is asking Maria for some space. She can't feel like she's being judged all the time. But Maria's trying to look out for her. She doesn't trust Valenti. After all of her dealings with him, she knows he seems like he's by the book, but he is determined, and that means he'll do whatever it takes. And after Amy's passed, obviously there's been kind of a parade of men who have come through this house, and once they get what they want, they go their own way. And you see Amy kind of coming to that realization that what an example she's leading for her daughter. No wonder Maria kind of keeps going for guys like Michael who are emotionally unavailable. That's all she's ever really known. I actually think it's this conversation that causes Amy to overreact a little bit the next morning. So this is where those two storylines meet back up. Michael has stormed off from Max and Isabel. After the fight with Hank, he just can't stand to be around them. He can't stand to go back to the Evans. And he has nowhere else to go. So it's raining outside and he shows up outside of Maria's window. He's just getting soaked and out in the rain. He looks like a little puppy. You just, oh, you want to hug him? Maybe it's just me, you guys. Oh, I love this kid. And Maria is trying to stand strong. She is going to say, no, she's not going to be like her mom. She's not going to give in. And you see her open up that bottle of grief relief and she puts a couple drops under her tongue and then she just chugs the rest of the bottle down. But he looks so sad and so disheveled that she lets him inside and he is freezing and he is not talking and she can see that something is wrong. And when he basically starts crying, she lets him lie down in bed and she ends up spooning him and kind of rubbing his arm and back like that little child, like you'd comfort a small child. And she tells him, you don't have to tell me anything. You don't have to say anything. And here again is Maria's amazing character. She is going to look out for herself. She is going to protect herself. But when she sees someone in need, she cannot help but help them. Did that make sense? She is so loving and giving and caring and so emotionally intuitive that she understands when someone else genuinely needs a friend or support or just a person present who doesn't want anything from you who isn't trying to push anything on you and oh my god this is the scene that I tear up at when Michael's just shivering in bed he's still soaking wet and he's just crying there oh I want to give him a hug too oh I love you Michael I know you're a fictitious character but if you were real I would let you share my bed any day But the next morning, I guess the two of them fell asleep there. Amy DeLuca walks in and after this discussion about how once guys get what they want, they disappear, she's like, oh no, my baby daughter's having sex. So she starts hitting him like, get out, get out. Maria's trying to explain, no, nothing happened. We slept together, but we didn't sleep together. He was just in pain. He needed help. But no, she does not want her daughter to make the same mistake that she did obviously she had this child really young with a guy who didn't care anything about her and she'll be damned if she lets that happen to Maria and you can just see it like her performance it's so tightly wound it's so determined this is the mama bear this is that mother's instinct that comes out that just says I will protect my child and right now she sees Michael as a threat it seems like the sheriff's department agrees with that statement because the next day at school, Michael is pulled out of class. Valenti wants to question him. There were reports about a disturbance at that trailer, and there were gunshots that went off, there were yelling, there were arguing. And then later in their night, there were tortured screams, inhuman sounds that came from inside that trailer. So he wants to know, where was Michael last night? But Michael doesn't say a word. He's going to protect Maria. He's also not a snitch, so he's not going to tell Valenti anything. Through all this, though, Max and Isabel see how serious Michael is about this situation, and Isabel is going through everything she has about their homeworld, the sketches of the geodesic dome, the articles about Atherton, and the stones that Riverdog gave them that fit into that cave-painting wall. That's all they have about where they come from. But without Michael, it means nothing. Max even goes to Liz in this harsh time. They kind of address that they've been putting off a conversation. They still haven't fully dealt with that kiss yet. He says he didn't remember. It's back to normal. They can't be together. But when he's in trouble, he reaches out to her. And the way that scene is shot, I think, really describes how their relationship is. He goes up. To her bedroom on that terrace she's inside looking through a telescope but um all the lights are on and you're in the middle of a city so I don't know what you think you're gonna see girl but that's not really how telescopes work the darker the better anyway she's inside he's outside he won't go in to see her he just ends up kneeling or sitting against the brick wall under her window ledge and you can see her reach out to him at one point and put her hand on his shoulder I think that says everything about where they are. She is feeling everything that he's saying. When he's saying Michael's pulling away, he's going to go. That's how Liz feels. That's how she thinks Max is. Pulling away, not letting anyone in. And you see how hurt she is. But yet she's still willing to reach out to him, to be there for him. I think it's that selflessness that inspires Max and Isabel to give Michael this package from their home world. I know he was arrested by Valenti, but Maria pleads with her mother to go and talk to Sheriff Valenti. He was there all night. He's being honorable by not outing her. And Sheriff Valenti will believe Amy if she says it. Their relationship is so strong that even though she's that worried about her daughter, she believes her. So she goes to Valenti's office and says, Michael was there all night. And Valenti's kind of like, well, if you say so, Amy... And this is where she gets a little questioning. Will you believe me, but you wouldn't believe my daughter? And no, she's a teenage girl. She'd say anything to protect her boyfriend. And it's at that moment where Amy comes to the realization that she needs to put Maria first. She can't worry about herself. She can't have distractions in her life. She can't just be happy-go-lucky with a guy. Maria's at that age where she needs guidance. She needs a role model. The bond that these two women have, Amy and her daughter, it's stronger than just, oh, she's some teenage girl. They've been codependent for a very long time, but that's led Maria to mature faster than some of these other kids her age. Anyways, whatever. Michael gets out. Amy's relationship is basically at an end. Michael decides, yes, he is going to take off. And so he gets his package from Max, before he's basically just going to hitchhike out of town. But there's one conversation that these kids have that, again, gets under my skin a little bit. It's Max laying into Michael a little bit. He's saying, you actually have it easy. Max has more pressure on him. He has people depending on him. He has expectations he has to meet. He's got that accountability. Michael has Hank, so he can do anything. No one expects anything of him. And oh, this is baloney. No, it's the exact opposite. Max had support. Max had guidance. Max had goals. No one ever expected anything of Michael. And do you know how much harder it is to achieve when everyone already expects you to fail? That's so much worse than having people say, I believe in you. I think you can do stuff. Maybe you can't live up to your expectations or their expectations and that's hurtful. But I think being crushed down is a lot harder than being falsely built up. But Max, again, is in his own little world. He has his own little problems. And he can't see the magnitude of what Michael's dealing with. And even though he's trying to get Michael out of his shell, like, think about someone else... Yes, it does help to get outside your own bubble. If you can do good for other people, it makes you feel good in return. But Michael has been taking care of himself for so long. Like I said, these kids didn't even invite him over for dinner. So I'm sure there were days where he went without food because Hank bought alcohol instead. So don't tell him to think of other people. He has been fighting just to survive, not thriving like these other kids. So, mm, That makes me a little bit mad with Max, and I understand why Michael just takes off after this. In this scene, I think what makes it so emotional to me is also the song that's playing. It's Nevo De Nova, and it's Did You Disappoint Your God? And it's such, like, a sad moment. Michael's on the side of the road. He's kind of sitting there in the dark, which is really dangerous. If you're going to hitchhike, don't do it on the side of a gravel road at night. You're going to get hit. Anyways, he's all forlorn and most people are passing him by until a trucker pulls up. Apparently, this guy is selling soda or something like that because he's like, we sure do sell a lot of soda in these tourist towns. And he's just kind of mumbling on, just making conversation about, oh, why would anyone go to Roswell? If you were an alien and you could go anywhere, would you pick Roswell? It's at this point that Michael's unwrapping that package that Max gave him and he's holding those crystal stones in his hand. He's twirling them around like they're stress balls or something. And if this is the only clue to your alien heritage, uh, I would hide that. Because if nothing else, it looks like a precious stone and someone could rob you when you're hitchhiking. I mean, I'm sure you could probably protect yourself with your powers, but still, you might kill the guy and then you're no better off than if you would hurt Hank. This song and the questions about Roswell are enough to change Michael's mind, though. I'm imagining that he's hearing this song on the radio as the scene progresses, and he's thinking about his life and what it would mean to run, what that would actually be like, and if he would have any better chance of finding Nasato on the move. You know, when they say you get lost, the best way to have people find you is to just stay still? Maybe that's what Michael needs to do. Anyways, the last, like, five minutes of the episode flies by. It cuts back to the Evans household the next morning. Michael's in the kitchen. He came back. He's cooking everyone breakfast. He's making omelets. And Isabella's oh her heart is overflowing. Mr. Evans looks pretty impressed, and Mrs. Evans is like very nice. She's always friendly. Like, oh it looks great, Michael, because she she's just a sweetheart. She really is. Mr Evans is kind of gruff. But Michael, in this moment, actually gets up the nerve to ask for help. Earlier on, he said it would kill him to ask, but now he realizes what would really kill him is being away from these people that he cares about. So he asks if there's any way that he could live on his own. And okay, The next, like, five minutes, it goes through, like, the whole emancipation process. I guess they fill in some forms, they get some recommendations, they meet with a judge, they sign a piece of paper, and the judge is like, hmm, well, these two teenagers sure did have confidence in you, and that swayed my opinion. You're free. You can definitely take care of yourself now. You know, Michael, Mr. Responsible, with a criminal record and a terrible school record? Oh, my goodness. Sure, yeah, let's just let him do his own thing. Oh gosh, I just have to think of other shows nowadays. For example, The Fosters. After two seasons, they're still dealing with, like, adoptions and foster care and getting licenses and losing licenses and breaking the terms of their agreements and then going to juvie and then putting in group homes. And then I've just got to think, hey, like, three minutes and this whole storyline's wrapped up. Michael is free once and for all. And... Oh my gosh, in the background Max and Isabel are wearing these matching hideous oversized leather coats as they're just like nodding and smiling while he's signing these papers. <laughs> oh my gosh this could have been like weeks worth of storyline it's really strange the things they put emphasis on because even nowadays it doesn't have to take up half an hour of your 40 minute episode but you could have like five minute scenes for a couple of weeks while they go through this process and what it's like in the meantime and where did he stay and oh my goodness nope paper signed everything's great Maybe Mr. Evans greased the right wheels. Maybe he's like a shady lawyer that just pushed this through. Maybe he golfed with the judge or something. I don't know. Anyway, that gets totally taken care of. The only thing lurking over this situation is the fact that Hank went missing. You see, after that disturbance call, he didn't show up for work the next day. They haven't been able to track him down. And that was why Michael got brought in for questioning. He might have been the last person to see Hank. Except, oh, wait. Hank saunters into Sheriff Valenti's office in the last scene. He's, oh, I was down in such and such a town, and I was drunk, and I met a lady, and and those sounds that you heard was just me cleaning my gun. I guess I shouldn't be drinking while I'm cleaning my gun. Sheriff Valenti's like, okay... Like, I don't know. He seems... Sometimes I can't read him. He seems suspicious. But at the same time, it's like this guy is kind of a creep. He's kind of a jerk that was using Michael for the foster money. So when this guy says he's getting a job out of town and if he has to sign any papers about that boy... But nope. This emancipation went through, like within what, like 24, 48 hours? I don't think this is like weeks later. I feel like this was like, oh, come into my office this afternoon and we'll have it done by 3 p.m. tomorrow. That's not how that works. Like that can actually take years. All the, oh my gosh, the legal ramifications. No. Anyway, I guess that wraps everything up in a neat little bow and no one's gonna look for Hank because he's already out of town. When cheerful end, he's like, make it sooner rather than later that you're leaving. He has this line, i'm already gone and he's giving like crazy eyes and you're like okay if you didn't seem suspicious before you really do now and so when the final little sequence of the episode happens he's driving this truck out into the middle of nowhere and he gets out walks around the back pops open the trunk and (gasps) oh my gosh it's hank's dead body what and you see him burying it and then going back into the car and he's taking a bunch of pills but he holds up his hand a bright light starts shining his face starts morphing and then he turns into like i guess that trucker that we saw earlier (gasps) could it be i think it's nisado what he is a shapeshifter after all and oh my goodness he's in town was he helping michael did he torture Hank? Is he there to getting close to them? Who knows, guys? We'll have to tune in next week. Oh my goodness. I love it. I love Michael episodes. I'm so happy that he's free. I want to see him grow as a person and take on new responsibilities and be accountable to himself with no one else weighing him down. I want only positive people and things in his life. So we will have to see if that happens. If there's anything I missed, if there's anything else you want me to bring up in the next couple episodes, email me at thecrashdownpodcast at gmail.com. Send me a shout out on Twitter, guys. It's the Crashdown Pod. Other than that, listen, like, follow, subscribe, whatever you do, however you listen to this. I would love to hear your feedback. And until next time, you guys, ah! Happy Roswell watching.